everyone. Welcome to Really Interesting Women. My name is Richard Graham and my guest today is currently Deputy Managing Director of Future Women, which is an organisation that supports professional women to accelerate their careers, works with men to overcome unconscious bias and helps organisations tackle barriers to gender equality. She's also a best-selling author for adults and children, a columnist for Sunday Life magazine, which is part of The Age and the City Morning Herald. She's a podcaster, currently a co-host on The Briefing podcast. She's been a regular commentator on The Project, Today, The Drum and Q&A. Early in her career, she was an advisor to the Rudd and Gillard governments and at 25 became one of the youngest ever to work as a chief of staff to a federal minister. She's an ambassador and director of several not-for-profits and has been named as one of Australia's 100 Women of Influence by the Australian Financial Review. Let me introduce you to Jamila Rizvi. Jamila, welcome to Really Interesting Women. Thanks so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, Jamila, your father, Abul, was a senior official in the Department of Immigration for nearly 20 years. Did his work have an influence on you and your outlook? Uh, absolutely. I grew up in one of those families where um, there was never the kids' table at an event. Um, we were very much, my sister and I, included in the family's discussions and conversations, including about politics and policy. So I think Dad's work was something that was discussed a whole lot and which the two of us felt like we were very connected with it. Uh, and certainly as a as a teenager during the, the Tampa crisis when I was in high school, um, I have really strong memories of, of my dad picking me up from from school uh, on that day and, and saying the minister made a decision today that will change the country forever. And I recall, you know, being a 14-year-old who went, oh, yeah, sure, Dad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah really big yes. deal. Um, uh, but over the coming weeks really saw that what he'd said was, absolutely true mm. um, and so I think as a result um, what he did and the way he approached his work was something that really shaped both both my sister and I. I. I mentioned in the intro your early political career and being one of the youngest to ever work as a chief of staff to a federal minister. I mean for the benefit of young listeners what qualities do you think Kate Ellis saw in you at that very early age to give you such responsibilities? Oh wow! Um, I'm not sure. I feel like you'd have to ask you have to ask her. But um, in terms of what she saw saw in me, but I I think that um, personally, what I see now as as a great chief of staff in in the political context, um, I is is much more developed than I had at the time. I mm. think I've got a much clearer sense now of what of what's required. And I think people who gr- make great political staffers and particularly make great chiefs of staff are um, people who have a really strong understanding of the policy development process and, and um, a trust and a respect for the role of the public service in that process, who understand the systems of parliament and how to make those systems work to your advantage because mm. I think if you don't have a good understanding of them, they tend to you tend to work for them rather than being able to make them work for you. Um, someone who understands both hard power and, and soft power um, you know, a person who recognises that often uh, the rooms where the greatest power is vested, so to speak, aren't mm. necessarily the rooms where ultimately decisions get made and that there are a whole lot of factors that shape ministerial decision-making um, and someone who can balance the, the needs of um, feeding a hungry media 
and dealing with the internal politics of a political party as well as the external politics of, of the electorate and being able to balance that with having a really strong vision of, of what the minister wants to achieve and a clear path to, to get there. You must have also had a lot of very um, obvious personal qualities, I don't know, like a, a, an energy or, or a diligence. You know, I'm thinking what young women could show when to, to increase their prospects of being employed, mm-hmm. how do they approach that, you know, day one or week one of the new job to impress? Look, I think um, one of the great benefits of being a young person in a workplace is that you tend to approach it with enormous energy um, and that's certainly something I think I have at the time and as a staffer you absolutely need. You do need to have a really relentless energy mm. because the pace of that work is, is really extreme. Um, I think it's easy in a space like that to fall into the trap of either being too scared to put up your hand for responsibility because you haven't done that thing yet. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side of that, putting your hand up for things you're not quite ready for uh, uh, because the um, the gravity of what you're doing is huge. So you don't want to you don't want to be put, be putting yourself in a position where you're, you you aren't up to the task. Um, so I do think having that a really good sense of self and a really good clarity of what you're good at and what your skill set is and what you do and don't know yeah. um, is what is what I'd really recommend that people people have if they're pursuing those kinds of roles. Despite having all that early success, you left politics in 2012 to take up a role with mamamia.com.au, a women's media company that most will be familiar with, where you eventually became editor-in-chief. But why that move from politics into Mamma Mia? Yeah, I think it was it was a strategic one, if, if anything. I um, uh, I had been um, acting as, as Kate Ellis' chief of staff for long stretches um, at that point, um, over, over about 18 months, and... I, I did, um, I think, realise that I was probably too young to get the job for good. But once you've done the role for that long, it's really hard to, mm. to not want to keep doing it or go back to being the deputy. Um, so I think there was a bit of personal frustration, but there was also some pragmatism of recognising uh, where the government was at and knowing that it was it was likely that the coalition were going to win the next election in um, uh, that was lying on the horizon in 2013. And I, I think I was really just looking at the landscape and thinking right. if there's going to be a whole bunch of people with the same skill set as me unemployed all at once, um, I'd prefer to, to depart early. And um, I wanted to have a think about what was next for me and what I wanted to do because I'd still been at university when I started working at Parliament House and working for the what was then the Rudd government. Um, so I'd never really sort of had that, you know, finish university and look out into the world and think about what you want to be. I'd sort of done what was next and it felt like the opportunity to try something new. I've heard you talk about how grateful you were having Kate Ellis and Mia Friedman as mentors early in your career. Is it important for women to be mentored by other women? I think it's important for women to be mentored. Um, uh, But if anything, I I think we have a bit of a problem um, uh, in, in the kind of community uh, consensus that women need to be mentored by only other women. Mm. Certainly, you want to make sure that your mentor is someone who can understand you and who recognizes um, the challenges that you might face, but that doesn't mean they have to have lived them. 
Um, and I do think if we leave it up to only very senior women in, in government, in business, to do the mentoring of other women, then there's not as many of them. And we put an enormous amount of pressure on women who are at the top of their game uh, to carry the burden for 50% of an organization's staff mm. um, and their mentoring load. So um, no, not at all. I think you know someone else who was an incredible mentor to me right at the beginning of my career was um, Professor Ian Chubb when he was the vice chancellor at ANU who is an extraordinary human being and um, I learned a, a huge amount from. Um, so no, I don't, I don't think so. Um, the nature of my work has meant that I have tended to work very closely with um, uh, intelligent, committed, powerful women um, and have been really lucky, I think, in having time spent watching how they operated up close. Mm. Uh, but I also worked with during... Uh, sort of both my careers in the media and in politics um, with men in senior roles who I also learned from in, in a big way. So I don't think gender alone should, should dictate a mentoring relationship at all. You left a regular salary at Mamma Mia to become a freelance writer, speaker and broadcaster. I mean, we have one freelancer in our family and I know it takes a bit of courage to jump into that. Did you feel mm. brave making that move? No. Yeah? <laughs> I felt... Um, no, I didn't. Don't think I felt brave at all. I felt uh, very uncertain um, about what about what life was going to look like. I had a young baby at the time. My son was mm, maybe six months old, um, but uh, you know, I was fortunate that I was in a in a relationship with um, uh, my partner, who is an incredibly supportive person. Um, and he sort of said, "Well, we'll give it a crack, and if it doesn't work, you have to go back to work, and we'll find something else for you to do." Yeah. Um, uh, and I think he really backed me to start building my own my own um, sort of portfolio career, I suppose, at that time. Uh, but no, I didn't feel sure. I didn't feel particularly confident. I wasn't entirely clear on what it was going to look like. But I did make sure that I, I locked in a handful of ongoing paid projects, um, not necessarily big money projects, but wow. ongoing projects before I made the leap so that I had that, that safety net. Well, you, well, you did start building a portfolio career with some great success there too. And, and a, a couple of years into that journey, some shocking news, you announced you'd been diagnosed with a brain tumour. That must have been extremely distressing for you and your very young family. I mean, what, what, what did the first month after that diagnosis look like? Uh, well, um, I think, for the first few weeks at least, to be honest, I, I think it wasn't a lot more than shock. Mm. Um, I was fortunate in that I was really well supported. I had I had family who came down to help us. Um, friends were incredible in, in really rallying around us and looking after us. And when you get a really shocked diagnosis like that where you haven't sort of been connected to the medical system in a big way before that, I mean, I been to hospital to have a baby and to have my wisdom teeth out that was about it mm. Um, mm. It, it was a real um uh, baptism of fire i suppose learning to navigate a system that my husband and i just hadn't really had much to do with before um and meeting more and more specialists and having more and more tests and and starting to come up with a plan of, of what my life was going to look like um before and after surgery um it was you know, I, I, it, it's sort of hard to put words around, I suppose, because it, it, it is one of those situations that's close to indescribable. Um, 
but for me, because the shock was so big, it wasn't like we'd been searching for answers to mysterious symptoms for years and years. It was yeah. it was a real shock. Mm. Um, and it, it really, I was quite fortunate that we found it when when I when I did. Um, I think a lot of people probably would have found it a lot later. Um, uh, but if anything, I think I learned during that period that you know knowledge is power. You'd rather know. Uh, that something like that is happening in your body than not know because mm. knowledge means you can start to start to take um, steps that mean you can have treatment that hopefully means you survive. And, I mean, I imagine a big part of the long recovery process is learning where your new limits are. I mean, are, are, yeah. you, are you any good at working and playing within, within limits? <laughs> um, look, I definitely am very good at finding out exactly where the limit is. Uh, and putting myself back in hospital. <laughs> that's one of my special. That's oh, one of my dear. special skills. Yeah. Um, yeah. It has like it has been an extraordinary um, rediscovery process. Uh, the best way I can describe it is if you um, if you ever spent time around toddlers when they're learning to walk and they still look like they're just not quite in control of their limbs and they don't always know where their hand ends and where their foot ends and yeah, constantly yeah. banging into things and falling over. Um, that's how I felt for a good few years, I think, during during and after treatment, um, learning how to make a body work and function that behaved completely differently to how it used to and didn't follow uh, anymore the usual rules of how the human body works and mm. all these things that I'd always just taken for granted yeah. um, just didn't didn't happen anymore. Um, I suppose that the the good thing is that like I look back, it's now been almost six years, um, I can look back on it and I can see how far I've come and that it is possible to adapt and to find new ways of doing things. But it was certainly a really big blow for someone who lived a pretty fast-paced life and, and was an ambitious person with big plans. Mm, and, I mean, you know, the, the, the big plans still keep seeming to come into fruition. I mean, even now you've... You've written five books, and I'm going to put a link to those in the show notes, but from a purely selfish perspective, I wanted to have a quick chat about one of them, uh, Untold Resilience. Now, I'm coming yeah. across a lot of that in what I'm doing on this podcast, and I was wondering, from your perspective, given your extensive personal knowledge and personal experience in this area, were there still things you learnt from writing that book that made you just shake your head in admiration and disbelief? Oh, absolutely. So uh, firstly, um, um, that was a book that I, I co-edited and wrote a, a big portion of, but co-edited with Helen McCabe, who's the Managing Director at Future Women, where I work now. Um, and Future Women published that book with, with Penguin Random House. It's a collection of stories that we put together in direct response to the pandemic. So uh, in the sort of mid part of 2020, um, I really had an incredible urge to speak to my grandmother, who has um, who died quite some time ago, but who lived through the depression and lived through the tuberculosis, and as a as a child, spent almost a year living inside with with her siblings, being taught at home, and not leaving the house to keep mm. to keep she and her siblings safe from tuberculosis and also from polio. So I remember at the at the beginning of the pandemic, just thinking, I wish I could talk to her about what that was like, and and I you know there there was that. Um, word that we all kept using that these are unprecedented times, they're unprecedented times, when actually, you know, we're a new generation doing things differently for a new era, but most times are actually precedented and humans have survived uh, pandemics and epidemics before. Um, 
So that book is a collection of essays written in the first person, but by, by ghost writers, and mm. I was one of them, um, uh, stories of women in their 80s and 90s who have lived through enormous um, global upheaval and who have lived through enormous personal tragedy. And I found that um, spending so much of May and June of 2020 in constant phone and Skype and Zoom conversations with these women, mm. um, hearing their life stories, uh, was not only terribly affirming, but also quite reassuring, you know, a reminder that humans have an incredible capacity to solve problems um, and to survive, and that the determined to, to, determination to survive is, is, is so strong that um, humanity has managed to get through all kinds of crises. So, yeah, that, that, working on that book um, absolutely taught me a whole lot about resilience. Mm, mm. In 2018, you mentioned that you joined Future Women as a part-time editor at large, and then you are now a full-time deputy managing director. The organisation is committed to, amongst other things, making gender equality a reality at work. I read an amazing stat you provided in one of your pieces, and that was that there are more CEOs called Andrew in the top 200 companies than there are female CEOs. How do you educate corporations of the benefits of employing more women and paying them fairly. Well, uh, Future Women does a whole lot of different things, but that's one of the things we do. We spend a lot of time with senior leaders, um, boards, executives, uh, who are still mostly men, uh, whether it's government or whether it's the not-for-profit sector or business uh, here in Australia. And we spend an awful lot of time with them talking to them about about diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, with a, we have a really strong focus on gender, but also a broader conversation that we, we have with organisations. And I think the truth is that different people are convinced by different things. Um, uh, so when you're trying to make the case to organisations that they need to invest in having a gender equal approach to their recruitment, to their retention, to their promotion, for example, um, for some people it is uh, about pounding the data and, you know, hitting them with facts until they recognise that it's a problem. Mm. For some, it's about appealing to their sense of fairness and their sense of equality and their and their, um, their core beliefs. For others, it's about telling the stories of people in their lives. It's about um, helping them to find an emotional entry point into the issue, um, helping them understand that this is, you know, their mother, their sister, their daughter mm. uh, that could be impacted and, you know, a lot of good feminists will say you should care anyway you shouldn't care just because this might happen to women who are related to you yeah. I agree with that but I also just want people to care so mm. um, I much prefer the corporations cared why they care to be honest ends up being irrelevant as long as we can get them there yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and then for some it's about it's about proving to them that it's not just the right thing to do it's the smart thing to do um, companies that have uh, more women on their boards, more gender equal approach on their on their boards, make better decisions, um, increase profit, um, uh, increase productivity. Uh, diverse opinions in a room and diverse decision makers means you have fewer blind spots and diverse groups make better decisions. Mm. So if you've got a, a boardroom of 10 people and nine of them are straight white dudes who all went to the same private schools, mm. you are missing a huge amount of lived experience and knowledge that is just not sitting around that table. So, so what sort of work do you do then with the young women to help accelerate their careers? Yeah, so I, I think it's a, it's a challenging space to be in because 
part of the education piece that we do and the training piece we do with women in organisations who are emerging as leaders is to help them recognise that the big barriers to gender equality are not their fault. Um, they'll experience them, but they're not their fault. They're the responsibility of the organisations themselves to um, to fix and to uh, see what they can do to do better. But at the same time, while you're working in whatever circumstance or structure that you're working in, there are things that you can do to improve your own leadership credentials. And we know that women tend to receive less investment um, and less time in, in when it comes to developing their leadership skills. So a lot of the work that we do is highly flexible. Um, it's built around community and it's built around being able to dip in and out of the curriculum when it suits you, recognising that working women tend to be very busy people. Mm. Um, and a lot of the training that we do is around understanding your own leadership style, um, building uh, a leadership toolkit, when, especially when it comes to managing managing people and bringing them with you, um, but also communication style and confidence in, in being able to speak your mind, to run a meeting, to appear on a panel, to give a speech, to be on television, um, because I think there are a lot of women who've been made to feel through their lives that that's not something that, that's for them. Mm. Um, it's And I'll put the website up on the show notes again, but it's futurewomen.com. Um, a lot of fabulous information there. Um, a lot of people talk about ambition as being very important. And one of the women I admire most, Eleanor Roosevelt, interestingly said, ambition is pitiless. Any merit that it cannot use, it finds despicable. Was she right? And does that necessarily make ambition a bad thing? No, I don't think so. I think we can be ambitious in all kinds of ways. We don't necessarily have to be ambitious only for ourselves and our own personal success. Mm. You can be ambitious for the good of your community. You can be ambitious to achieve a to achieve a goal that you know is going to benefit a lot of people. Um, but I think personal ambition is is not a bad thing. I think personal ambition with no greater purpose or no broader purpose at all is something I'd question. Mm. Sort of what's what's the point? Yeah, you know that becomes a bit of a power for power's sake or money for money's sake kind of situation, that's certainly something worth questioning. But I think most people's ambition, um, even if it is self-interested as well, extends to something bigger than that and a greater impact than that. I think most human beings don't just want to want the job, they want to do the job. Mm. And in doing the job, there's something in particular that, that, that they want to achieve. I mean, do you think then, following on from that, that compassion and empathy have a role in business and politics? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, I, 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 I think most certainly in politics, I, you know, I, I'm, I worked with and met a lot of politicians when I was working with Canberra and in Canberra and still do work with a lot of politicians in my, in my current work mm. and the politicians who know their communities and know the people they're representing and understand the experiences that they've had and the challenges that they have in their ordinary lives and have compassion for that experience are the ones who do the best job because you know a politician might be representing an electorate of 90,000 to 100,000 people mm. you can't possibly have had all of the experiences that those people have just because you live in the vaguely similar area to them yeah, yeah. um uh, the only way i think you can be an effective politician is is through an exercise of, of compassion and understanding um and i think business is is really no different um you know at, at future women we talk a lot about the fact that we ask the question of who is our audience here? You know, are we doing this work 
are we writing the program for ourselves? Are we writing the program to impress the government that funded the program or are we in writing the program for the people who are going to complete it and be part of it? Um, are we, we have to remember who the point of what we are doing is for. Um, and I think that compassion and empathy are essential because you have to be able to put yourself in, in the shoes of the, I suppose for our case, it's the consumer. Yeah. Um, but if we're trying to provide a service that supports them to get to the next stage in their career or improve their company for the better or change their hiring practices, then we've got to be invested in, in the outcome and invested in them as individuals. Jamila Rizvi, I have one last question for you, and that is, what makes you most proud of yourself? Oh, what an awkward question for, to ask, but a really good one. Um, what makes me most proud of myself? Um, I pride myself on a bunch of things, I think. I think I have a lot of good qualities. I have a lot of bad ones too, uh, <laughs> but among the good ones are I think I am a really enthusiastic person and I think enthusiasm is something that we underrate, uh, especially in a country where, you know, the worst thing you could call another kid at school when I was at school was a tryhard. Mm. Um, the idea that trying was not cool, mm. uh, I think it's really ingrained in, in, in Australians because we, we sort of have that tall poppy syndrome sense of if, if you're trying too hard, you're trying to be the best and you're trying to stand out. Um, for me, it's not so much about trying to be the best it's more about trying everything um you know i'm someone who feels miserable that you only get one life and one long career i'd love to do it a hundred times over um i like to full, throw myself into things that at full force and i find that usually you get pretty good results by mm. doing that mm. absolutely jamila rizvi thank you so much for your very valuable time today and thank you for being such an important part of really interesting women Oh, thank you so much, Richard. Thank you for joining me on Really Interesting Women. I'd love you to head to my Instagram at Really Interesting Women for photos and details of other podcast guests, as well as browsing the very popular Really Interesting Women in History posts. All podcasts can be found on all major platforms, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So make sure you follow Really Interesting Women so you don't miss anything. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>